Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. And it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Amen. Well, good morning. Once again, it is good to see you. I am so thankful that you're here, that we get to start our week in worship together. Sorry, Doug, we'll talk about that later. West side. <coughs> Something just didn't feel right. Um, anyway, no, it's so good to be here. Um, so thankful that we get to start our week in worship. If you have a Bible with you, you're not already, <clears throat> not already in Luke chapter 2, go ahead and turn there with me. I'll give you just a minute to turn there as we get set up here. We just started a study like last week that's gonna take us all the way through the book of Luke. Over the course of the next six months, we're gonna make our way through Luke's rendition of the story of Jesus chapter by chapter. But for the sake of time, we are gonna have to fast forward through some of the more familiar parts of the story so we can spend some more time in those parts of the story that stand out and help us know that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And that really was the reason that Luke wrote his gospel. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just the first four verses that serve as an introduction to Luke's gospel. And he tells us why he wrote his gospel. And in summary, he says, many, as he looked around in about 60-ish AD, he looked around and he said, many people have already undertaken to record the story of Jesus' life. And he had already seen the gospels of Matthew and Mark and probably other people that were starting to write the story of Jesus down to pass on. But as you looked around, he said, I have carefully investigated all of this. He spent time with the Apostle Paul traveling from town to town, preaching the gospel, planting churches, watching the gospel change lives in a very real way. And he says, I want to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, the benefactor of his letter, and, and to all who would read it later, so that you would know, know with certainty that the things you have heard about Jesus are true. It's the Greek word epigonosko. And it's this idea that we would know intellectually, but also experientially that all the things we've heard about Jesus are true. 
And I think, like, we approach Luke's gospel the same way the first century leader, reader approached Luke's gospel, is we are all familiar with the story of Jesus. Now, some of you are very familiar with faith. You've grown up in church, and you've given your life for faith. Some of you are trying to figure it out for the first time, but really, no matter where we are coming at this story, we are familiar in some way with the story of Jesus. And as we approach Luke's gospel, we want to go from familiar with faith, the familiar with the story of Jesus, to how can we know? The idea of know with certainty, historically and theologically, that the things that we've heard about Jesus, that Jesus' message is true. And you see this in like all areas of life. There are things you know because you've always heard about them, and then there are things you know because you have experienced them, right? Like there's a difference kind of knowing. There's this, like I've heard a lot about, and therefore I'm pretty sure I know, and then there's this other kind of knowledge that comes when we experience for ourselves. I was asking Carissa this week, I was like, how do I illustrate this for the people? And uh, and she's like, well, it's kind of like marriage. And she, she said, she's like, I kind of knew what I was getting when I married you, Adam, because I looked at your dad. But when I married you, it's like I know what it's like to be married to your dad. I don't really know what she was trying to say about that. But her and my mom have gotten really close over the last few months. So maybe, but it's this idea that like you know something because you've heard a lot about it. But once you experience it for yourself, you know the good, the bad, the ins, and the outs. And that is why Luke wrote his gospel. That's why we're going to spend the next six, next six months studying what Luke had to say about the way Jesus lived his life, the story of the gospel. And my prayer, just to be completely honest and transparent with you guys, as we make our way through the gospel of Luke, that we approach it as more than just an insightful study into who Jesus is. It is an insightful study into who Jesus is. And we'll walk away with a lot of that. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would work in our midst as we lean in and that we would experience the good news of Jesus in new in challenging and convicting and compelling ways so that as a church and as individuals, we might leave this study in six months looking differently than we do right now. And I mean like that you might in your personal relationship with Jesus look different. I don't care if you've been a Christian longer than I've been alive or you're figuring out faith for the very first time. As we encounter Jesus through the gospel, uh, my prayer is that you would experience uh, Jesus afresh. And so uh, last week, we read the introduction. We're going to fast forward this week through some of the most, the most familiar parts of the story. It might sound kind of familiar. If you've been in and around church for any significant period of time, you know the story of the birth of Jesus. It goes something like this. An angel appeared to a woman betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a virgin, and she told him what? You're going to conceive and give birth to a son. And she had a few questions because she was a young girl, but she knew how anatomy worked. That's not how it worked. And and uh, the angel said, don't worry about it. And Mary was faithful. And sure enough, in short order, she conceived Jesus. A census was issued, right? And the Roman ruling authority issued a census. And so Joseph, her betrothed, took her from uh, Nazareth, where they were living, up to the city of Bethlehem, his hometown, where they were registering for the census. When they got there, the town was already full to capacity. There was no room for them in the end. So they found a stable somewhere beneath, behind, under a house. And there she gave birth to a man named Jesus. The virgin gave birth to Jesus. Again, angels appear in a field, this time to a group of shepherds. They came and they said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That's for all the people. You know the manger story. They make their way to the manger. They see Mary. They see Jesus. Uh, and it's an incredibly exciting part of the story. And if it sounds exciting, I would invite you to stick with us for the next four months. Because in four months, we're going to cover that story in incredible detail. But today, we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 2. Verse 22. So you have your Bibles. I think I've given you enough time. Find it. Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 22. It says this. It says, and when the time came 
for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So pause right there for just a moment. So what's going on? We're familiar with the story of the Christmas story, right? This, that's the part about the angels and Mary and the virgin birth and the census and all of those things that we just talked about. And we're familiar with the life of Jesus and his ministry as it picks up at his baptism and his temptation and the things that happen after that, all the way to the death, the burial, and the resurrection. But this part of the story sometimes gets overlooked because it's kind of sandwiched in between there. But it's a significant part of the story, as we'll see, because Mary and Joseph, about 40 days after the birth of Jesus, they go from Bethlehem, about three miles, to the city of Jerusalem, and they go to present him to the Lord. And if, as we read this in the 21st century, you might wonder what in the world is going on. They were presenting Jesus to the Lord as they were instructed in the law of the Lord. In the Old Testament law that Jesus was born into, it made this provision for the people of Israel to go and present their firstborn sons to redeem their sons. And it's a tradition, this religious instruction tradition that started all the way back in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13, after the Passover, after God brought the people of, of Israel out of Egypt and he spared their firstborn sons when he wiped out all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt so that Pharaoh would finally let his people go. He instilled this in the law when he gave it to his people, this tradition that when they started a family with the firstborn son, they would go to the temple and symbolically buy back, redeem their firstborn son to remind them that God had spared their sons when he chose them as his people in Egypt. And so they would go up to the temple, every Jewish family with their firstborn son, and they would offer a sacrifice. Typically, it was a lamb. Mary and Joseph offered some birds because they didn't have enough money to buy the lamb. And so the law made provision for people who didn't have the means to buy a lamb. But we see Luke sharing, again, from both a historical, an event that took place perspective, but also a theological perspective that Jesus, in fact, fulfilled everything that was accomplished among us. And if you're reading the story and it's like, yeah, that sounds kind of familiar, I wonder if sometimes we approach the story like, yeah, I see that, but does it really matter to me? Like we read this story and it's not the most popular part of the story, so we look back at it and think, like, what does this part of Luke's story, the story of Jesus, have to do with me? And the, th the truth is, it matters a lot. Right, like it matters a lot. Every detail of the story of Jesus matters a lot. But a few years later, after Luke wrote this gospel, the Apostle Paul would write a letter to the church in Galatia to explain the significance of this moment and many more moments like it. So if you have your Bible, flip over with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to a group of believers in the first century in the city of Galatia. And to them, he says this, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, when all of history had laid out and the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that's the Christmas story, right? When the fullness of time had come at just the right time, God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who under the law, who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, so Paul tells us why this moment in the story of Jesus is so significant. Because Jesus came under the law in every little detail of the law, the things that Jesus chose to do, but even before he was old enough, his parents took him and presented him so that he could fulfill the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And when Jesus came, he came under the authority of the Old Testament law. He was born into the Old Testament covenant system as, the, as an Israelite, right? And so he was born into this system, this, this rigorous set of rules that started with the Ten Commandments and expanded over some 600 commandments so that the people of God would know how to live a holy life for God, to live a life set apart. And God gave his people this law so they could live a set-apart life to protect them, to offer a provision for them. But it quickly became clear that no one could live up to the rigorous set of rules. Right? Like no one from the very beginning was able to live up to the law. The idea was that if you could live up to the law and fulfill every law and live your life under the law, that you would be righteous before God. But it became apparent that no one could keep up with all the instruction that God gave to his people. And before we like look back with some criticism or some judgment, can you imagine how difficult it would have been to keep track of, to, to remember, and then to choose to live under all of those 600 laws? Last week, Carissa went out of town for the first time uh, in a long time for work, and she went to Dallas for four days, and so she left me alone with our child, unsupervised, for four straight days, th- four days, three nights, and she was very nervous about it. I don't know why, but she like tried to cover every single detail before she left. She had made meal prepped for us, made meals and put them in the fridge. She gave me specific instructions about everything. I was like, you know, I've been raising this child with you for the last two years. I have a pretty good idea. And she's like, yeah, I've seen it. Therefore, here's a list of instructions. And so she had to be at the airport at some unforeseen early hour. So Brighton and I got up. We took her to the airport at like 4.30. And the whole way there, the 20 minutes to, to the airport, she was just reviewing all of the rules, right? As soon as you get back, Brighton's going to need a bath. Like, I got it. I'm giving her a bath. She's probably going to need a diaper. I've got it, Carissa. She's going to want, you know, oatmeal for breakfast. You put blueberries in the oatmeal as you cook it. That's the only, it's like, Carissa, I've got it. Don't worry. That didn't stop. She's the whole way there. She's getting on the plane, texting me instructions. It's like, I've got it. And we got home. It wasn't 15 minutes after we got home. We got Brighton. I was like, this is going to be so exciting. It's daddy and Brighton time. And I was like, what was it she said Brighton was supposed to have for breakfast? <laughs> And I'm like, Brighton, do you want cookies for breakfast? Wasn't quite that bad, but I couldn't remember. And I was like, man, I should have written it down. And then we made it through the day. We had a babysitter all day, so we made it through the day. And that night, I, I had a very strict bedtime routine and one for Brighton, right? There was music, there was bath, there was music, there was diaper, all of these things. I got it. We went through the routine. Brighton went down like a little angel, and she slept peacefully for like two and a half hours. And she got up, and I remembered, Carissa said, because Brighton's been doing this for a while, she's like, when she gets up, you have to start the routine over. Whatever you do, don't bring her to bed with you, because that just throws the whole routine out the window. She's like, I've been working on this. And so it was like 2 a.m., it was was a little later, 2 a.m., and I I heard her crying, and so I got up. It was a miracle she woke me up. I was afraid she might cry through the night. Anyway, I got up, I go in there, I pick her up, and I'm like, all right, let's start the routine over. And I rocked her for about two seconds, I thought enough of this. I'm way too tired. I'm going to bed. So I brought her into bed. She loved it, of course, right? She cuddled up and we slept the rest of the night. That happened the next night and the next night. And then when Carissa got home, she's like, how did it go? I was like, Brighton's alive. looks like she put on a little weight. She had cookies for breakfast. And we put her down. Carissa put her down. The bedtime routine, about 2 a.m., she wakes up and uh, Carissa tries to do the routine and it doesn't work. She's like, did this happen while I was gone? I was like, yeah. She's like, what did you do? I said, I brought her to bed. It's like, why would I stay up? And she's like, you realize you threw off like two months worth of work, right? Uh, So the last two weeks, Brian's been sleeping in our bed. 
But I illustrate that because we look at this Old Testament law and it's, it's full of instruction for the good of the people and the glory of God. And sure, it's a lot to keep up with, right? They, they had the written law and so they were without excuse just as we are, but it was a lot to keep up with. They fell short, but at the end of the day, a lot like I treated Brian, Sometimes they just chose out of their selfishness not to do what God said to do, right? Like, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm going to choose me. I do not want to start this bedtime routine over. And so they chose to do what they wanted to do out of selfish ambition, and so do we. And so from the time that Moses, God gave the law through Moses to his people to today, we all fall short of God's perfect standard. And therefore, we needed someone to come under the law to fulfill the law for us so that more or less we could take credit for what he accomplished. It would be like if I took our little uh, almost two-year-old daughter this week and, and gave her a calculus test. And I said, you know, Brian, you just want you to take this calculus test. And she would scribble on it with all kinds of colors and, uh, and turn it in. And we'd say, you got none of the answers right. It doesn't matter how many times I gave it back to her, she would fail that test. Like her best efforts, even if I sat down and coached her, right? Like this is how you do calculus, which I could not do. Maybe you could. Calculus, it would not matter how many times I walked her through it, she would fall short despite her best effort. She would need someone trained in calculus to take the test for her and say, I will turn this in on her behalf. And that's what, what Paul is saying is taking place here. Jesus, why there's so much detail given in Luke's gospel that Jesus, in fact, fulfilled the law, the things that have been accomplished among us, that his parents, Mary and Joseph, took him to the temple, as was the instruction of the Old Testament law. They presented him as a baby, offered a sacrifice, because Jesus was born under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. And we're going to see this play out over the course of the next few verses. It goes on in verse 25, it says this, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so we meet this character whose story is incredibly significant in the life of Jesus and who teaches us so much about how we could follow uh, the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. This guy named Simeon, he was living in Jerusalem, he was old and advanced in years. It says he was righteous and devout. Now, that doesn't mean that Simeon was living up to the law, but he was giving his best effort, right? Like he was, he had the law. He was probably a priest in the temple or at least spent a lot of time in the temple and around the temple. He knew the instruction of God and he had decided that he was gonna be righteous, live in right relationship with God. And so he strived with everything he had to live up to God's instruction. It says he was devout. He was, he was committed to the routines and the, the rituals of the Jewish faith, going to the temple, keeping the commandments, keeping the Sabbath, offering the sacrifices. He might have even been a professional. He might've been a priest in the temple. He was righteous and devout and, uh, and he was striving to follow God. Yet at some point, even though, despite his best effort, he knew that something wasn't right. Like he knew that there was some kind of fracture in his relationship with God. He was giving it his best effort, yet he knew it wasn't right. Maybe you can relate to this. And I think this is somewhere I can relate with Simeon's story. Maybe you can too. Like we are, we are trying to be righteous and devout. Like we want a right relationship with God so much so that we're, we're devout. We show up at church every Sunday, some of us at 7 a.m. to set this stuff up so that we can worship together, so that we can invite people in. We give and we give generously and sacrificially the first fruits of our income because we want to see the kingdom of God go forth and we we try to watch our life right we try to watch the things we say and think and do and live a holy life as best as we can we go through the motions uh, 
worship and serve and everything in between. And yet somewhere, like we know that this just isn't enough, that it's falling short, that it produces in us this kind of turmoil or anxiousness or anxiety. And I know that Simeon was experiencing it because it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem, verse 25, whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of God for his people. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It was an incredible introduction. Yet, it says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. We will circle back to this. It says he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Like he was righteous and devout. He was devoted to the temple and the things, uh, that the sacrifices and the things that were supposed to make him right with God. Despite his best effort, it wasn't until Simeon beheld Jesus that he said, now I can depart in peace. It wasn't until Simeon realized by the uh, prompting of the Holy Spirit, he goes on who Jesus was. My eyes have seen your salvation, he says in verse 30. He spent his entire life, this man old and well advanced in years, living in and around the temple, watching people come to worship and offer sacrifices and do their best. It wasn't until he beheld Jesus, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. All of a sudden, it started to make sense for Simeon. When? When he beheld Jesus. This man who is righteous and devout, it wasn't until he beholds Jesus that he realizes, man, now things are right. There's peace with God. I can depart in peace. And the application we have today is like Simeon. If we are striving after God, our best efforts fall far short of God's perfect standard. Like God gives us a law, it is large, it is robust, it is for our good, it is for his glory, and yet all of us fall far short. Whether it's because we can't keep track of all the rules, we haven't invested the time to learn them, or we just are selfish in desiring to do our own thing, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and there is a fractured relationship between us and God. And despite, no matter how many times we show up to church, no matter how much pipe and drape we set up, or how much offering we put in the offering box on the way out, there is something that sets us at odds with God. And the only thing that allows us to have peace in this life and for eternity is when we behold Jesus and we realize that he is in fact our source of salvation. In the moment that Simeon saw Jesus, he realized that everything God promised him was, in fa- he was faithful to follow through on. The worship team sang a song, I don't know the title of it, but the song was, I, I, you are faithful then, you'll be faithful now. I have to wonder if that's the, the feeling that Simeon, all these things that God had said, the Holy Spirit had prompted him that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Christ, he got to see Jesus. And all of that inner turmoil, anxiety, anxiousness, uneasiness, it, it instantly fell away when he realized that God had provided a way for a peaceful relationship with him. Romans chapter five, verse one says, now because we've been justified in Christ, we have peace with God, New Testament. Then Romans chapter eight, verse one says this. It should be on the screen. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Paul says to the church in Rome, and by extension to us, is that when you put your faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation that you can know for certain. You can have peace because you know that when we put our faith in Jesus, we have right standing with God. Our relationship has been restored. And then he goes on and he describes our situation. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse three, for God 
has done what the law, this Old Testament law we've already talked about, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And what he's saying is like God gave the law to his people, the Old Testament people, so they could understand who God is. They could see his heart and ideally live up to it and live a holy, righteous life. But it says the law fell far short. It was powerless because no one could live up to it. And so all it did was continue to make us feel more guilty and condemn us. It says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those, uh, I think that's where I stopped, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And what we see Paul say is that when we put our faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins to work in and through us, we can have confidence like Simeon. We can have, we can, we can have peace because our eyes have beheld the salvation of God. And it's not just the forgiveness of sins, right? Like we're going to see that through the gospel of Luke. When we think of salvation, sometimes we think, man, God's forgiven my sins. It's like when we put our faith in Jesus, but salvation is much more than that. Salvation is the, the reality of a restored relationship with God, a right relationship with God through Jesus, that the righteousness of Jesus is being imputed to us. It is how we live in abundant life. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. And he doesn't talk about heaven. He says that you may know that they know you, speaking of God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It goes all the way back to what Luke said, I've written these things to you so that you would know Jesus, not just know about Jesus, not just know uh, what I have to say about Jesus. I've written these things to you so that you can experience through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus for yourself, which leads me to, I think, the application we take away. How did Simeon, like how did Simeon see Jesus differently for who he was than all the other priests on duty? I wasn't there, but commentaries say there were somewhere about 900 priests working in and around the temple at the time of Ze uh, Zechariah. Uh, is that John's dad? Anyway, look, John chapter 1. We shouldn't have skipped it. Anyway, uh, the time of Simeon. Uh, a lot of priests working in and around the temple, and they were doing really good things, right? They were helping the people offer their sacrifices. They were uh, working in the temple and, and all the responsibilities of a priest, the things that God had told them to do. But amongst the busyness and the routine of the religious activities going on at the temple, only Simeon saw Jesus for who he was. To everyone else, to coming in, uh, for everyone else at the temple, Jesus was just another baby coming to be presented. But Simeon saw him. How was it? It's because the Holy Spirit was at work in and through his life. Three different times it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit on Simeon's life. He says this. He says, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It says, and he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And so this, the Holy Spirit was at work in Simeon's life. The Holy Spirit was on his life because he was spending time with God. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him, and the Holy Spirit was directing his steps. And that's how Simeon was sensitive to see the salvation of Jesus. That's how he was able to see who Jesus was and what Jesus was about to do in his midst. And that is what a disciple is, right? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I think as a church, it's so easy. I'm speaking very much from personal experience. It is so easy to fall into the routine of what we do week in and week out. And it's a good routine. 
much like the activities going on at the temple, these were things that God had instructed them to do as for the good of the people and for the glory of God. But they got so caught up in the routine that they weren't spending the time with God and they missed God when he was working in their midst. But Simeon has spent time with the Holy Spirit. And don't get me wrong, Simeon's a bit of a weird dude, isn't he? I mean, Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus into the temple. It's like baby dedication when we do it every year. And, and this old guy just takes him up and starts dancing him around and saying, you know, now I can die, right? Like we would have security on you. We'd have walkie-talkie to the cop out front, have him in here in a few seconds, tase you if you did something like that. But Simeon was anxiously waiting to see the Lord's salvation. And he was listening to the Holy Spirit. When everyone else was busy with the religious rituals, Simeon spent time with God and was sensitive to the prompting of his spirit. My fear is in my life and perhaps in yours that we could get so busy with the routine of what we're doing here that we stop cultivating a close walk with the Holy Spirit. There was a violinist, uh, there is a violinist named Joshua Bell. He was the world's most famous violinist. In fact, at age 39, he was dubbed by whoever dubs people the America's greatest classical musician. And this guy, uh, I don't really follow classical music, but Nick told me I had too many sports illustrations, so I looked hard for a violin illustration. Uh, this guy fills up or fill, filled up concert halls, Carnegie Hall, with the minimum uh, price of a ticket, $100, to hear him play his Stradivarius guitar, or violin, sorry, violin. I'm, yeah, the story is true. My presentation, not, not so great. Uh, but what was fascinating was not this guy was so good at violin, but his world-renowned violinist, 2007, a news outlet, uh, wanted to conduct a test. He was in Washington, D.C. for a concert. He filled up a concert hall. The next day, they took him down into a metro station during Washington, D.C.'s busiest rush hour, $3.5 million Stradivarius violin in hand. He played for almost an hour, and only six people stopped to hear him play. This is a guy that the night before, 100, 100 bucks a pop or more, thousands of dollars paying to come hear him play Beethoven and Bach. He went down and played his exact set list from the night before in the midst of rush hour. In the 43 minutes he played, six people stopped, a total of $32.17 thrown in his hat for a tip. Hundreds of dollars the night before. One person at the end finally gave him a $20 tip who recognized him. But as I was reading about that story, I was realizing how easy it is to get so caught up in the busyness of our life, even the good things of life, to and from work, to and from family, to and from school, and miss what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our midst. And my, my prayer as we read the story of Simeon, as we reflect on what God was doing in and through him, is that like Simeon, we would recognize what Jesus wants to do in and through us. Because Simeon saw Jesus, he was changed by Jesus, even as a little baby, that knowing if God was faithful to bring him into the world, he would be faithful to follow through, that he could trust God, that his sins would be forgiven. And then he began to preach the gospel of Jesus. He's got, Simeon, he's got Jesus, baby Jesus in his hands. And he's saying, oh, my eyes have seen the salvation. He's going to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. What he's saying is that people are going to have to decide what they do with God now that Jesus is here. So my challenge for you this week is simply, how are you carving out time to cultivate a relationship with Jesus? Because I know you and I know you have good things going on. All of our UCF students, we start school this week. Like the, the semester is going to start, activities are going to start. Like how are you carving out time to sit at the Father's feet and let the Spirit speak? Some of you guys are busy at work and you're doing a good work, but it's 40, 60 hours a week. Like how are you carving out time? You're raising a family. Like, 
where are you carving out time to cultivate that relationship with the Holy Spirit so he can speak into your life? Because that's the way we experience Jesus in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. It continues to humble me that we get the privilege to gather here week in and week out and talk about the things of God, that all, like Luke says, all the things that you've accomplished in our midst. And Father, for, for the work you're doing in us and through us, we are just incredibly grateful. And we trust that this story is true. And we are proud uh, through our collective efforts to be able to proclaim it loudly on the east side of Orlando. But Father, I pray that as we reflect on the story of Simeon today, that you would just convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit concerning how we're carving out time to spend with you. Are we sitting at your feet and spending time in your word? Are we praying as through the regular rhythm of our life as we go to and from work and school, spend time with family, raising families? Lord, are we realizing that you've accomplished for us in Jesus what we can never accomplish on our own, but it's not just a one-time salvation moment, but that you want to continue to work in us and through us. Father, pray that you would make us sensitive to the work of your spirit, that we might live holy lives. It's in Jesus' name, amen.